Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. Our scripture portion this morning begins at verse 21 of 1 Peter 2 and goes to 25. A 13th sermon in the book of 1 Peter. We've been traveling through 1 Peter this year starting in January and we'll continue through the spring. And as a, as a note, we have a, a Bible conference this fall, which will also pick up on the themes that we've been learning about in 1 Peter, focusing on the victory of Christ in our sufferings. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy word. I'll pick up at the end of 1 Peter 2, verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and bishop or overseer of your souls. Let us pray. O God, your word is holy and pure and infallible. And the preacher's words by comparison are but that of a stammering child. So make much out of my little Magnify these small efforts to adorn your precious gospel in a way that your people will be encouraged and challenged in their faith. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Steps of Jesus, that's the title that you'll find on a flyer or a brochure or a postcard advertising a tour of the Holy Land in which Christians, like pilgrims, can walk across the shores of the Sea of Galilee, can walk down the banks of the Jordan River, can go to the Gentile lands of the Decapolis, or Tyre, Sidon, Caesarea. And a couple of years ago, I had plans to go in the steps of Jesus, but unfortunately, my trip was canceled due to COVID. So, as a result, I've literally never been in the steps of Jesus. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Most of you, like me, have also never actually been in the steps of Jesus. That's the bad news. But the good news is, by God's grace, you don't need to travel overseas in order to walk in the steps of Jesus. According to our text this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit, without ever leaving Glassboro, you too can walk 
in the steps of Jesus. Even now, 2,000 years later, you can walk in his steps. That's the title of my sermon this morning, Walking in His Steps. It's our 13th message, as I mentioned, in this little letter of 1 Peter. And Peter is writing and inviting you here this morning to walk in Jesus' steps. It's an invitation that was valid when he first wrote this letter 2,000 years ago, and it's still valid today. If you wish to learn what it means to be a Christian, you are invited this morning to walk in his steps. And if that's you, then God wants you to know four essential truths of what it means to walk in his steps. Four Ps. The price is high. The picture is that of an innocent lamb. The path is non-negotiable. And fourthly, the power is special or unique. So first of all, the price for walking in Jesus' steps is high. It's what... It's uh, suffering, is what Peter calls it in our passage. And it includes everything from ridicule or just being ignored for being a Christian, everything from those subtle forms of suffering to being beaten or even surrendering your life in the ultimate act of martyrdom. All of which means that if you're going to walk in his steps, you will pay a high price. If you've ever had the experience of going online and trying to buy something and you notice you come back the next day and the price is higher. Well, Jesus doesn't do that to us. The price is high from the beginning. It isn't low when you start out and it gets higher as you go. The entry fee is the ultimate price. Peter had to learn this lesson when he was asked by Jesus about his true identity in the Gospels, speaking of Caesarea. Peter in Matthew 16 was asked, who do men say that I am? And Peter answered correctly. He said, no matter what they're saying, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. But the problem is, when Peter said Messiah, he had one thing in mind. A, A dream had to die. Because Jesus proceeded to explain what it meant to be the Messiah. Messiah means I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going before the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. I will stand trial, being accused of crimes I didn't commit. I will be convicted, tried, and sentenced to death. I will be beaten by Roman authorities, scourged, whipped, spit upon, mocked. They will sell my clothes in a barter and hang me on a criminal's cross. That's what Messiah means, Peter. And Peter said, no way over my dead body. And in that moment, Peter had to learn the high price of following in his steps. Peter had to unlearn his idea of Messiah, his thought about Christ, and relearn the real truth about the Christ Edmund Clowney puts it this way, the very torture Peter wanted Jesus to at any cost to escape was the torture Jesus came to embrace and endure. So my first point is that the price is high. Bearing your cross, according to Jesus, means losing your life. And the counterintuitive bargain that we're offered is if you try to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you surrender your life, you will find it life eternal. 
Many of you, like me, would prefer to give the price of your physical life in dying. Martyrdom, all right, let's go. But the daily cost of dying to my sins, that daily witness of suffering when I'm unjustly accused by my children or my wife or my parents or my friends or the elders I serve with in this church or the staff that I work with, will ask them, no, that's too much. Martyrdom, yes. Daily suffering at the hands of my fellow believers requiring me to humble myself, to apologize, to not revile when I'm reviled, to bite my tongue, to hold my words, to be silent, to not seek retribution or revenge, to put in my two cents. The price is high. But not only is the price as high, the second P, it is a picture of innocence. My granddaughter Susie Lynn was over at our house yesterday and she was running around the hall and she's about this big and she's the picture of innocence. She thinks she's hiding from her mother and she's right in the middle of the room. It's adorable. But it isn't a baby that the Lord evokes when he paints the picture of innocence in our text. Instead, it's the picture of a little lamb, a lamb that dies and sheds its blood for the sins of the guilty. The picture is drawn from one of the most famous texts in the Old Testament, the suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53. It's the subject of countless songs and symphonies and poetry and productions. It's also the subject of endless debate as to what it means in its deeper senses, but at the surface we all can, can get the picture quite clearly this lamb for your sins. That's the picture. And it's important because that's the picture that we are to copy. Take a look at our text in 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, leaving an example, that word example, if you underline it, means to trace the outline of the alphabet. It's a, it's a vivid word. It, it evokes a child learning his letters. Or it's, if you're in the trades, it's when you roll out the blueprint and you say, where does this wall go? And you snap a line according to the architect's measurements exactly to the quarter of an inch to an eighth of an inch in some cases. The example is you tracing this picture of a little lamb who shed his blood innocently as a victim, unjustly. You're taking your pencil and the father's hand is over your hand like a parent's hand is over the child's hand, helping her hold the crayon or the pencil and the Father is helping you learn your letters, your A's, your B's, and your C's. There's, a, there's actually a word, a, a, there are four words in Greek. I won't bother you with them because I can't repeat them. Um, 
that apparently use all the letters of the Greek alphabet, sort of like a quick brown fox lazily jumps over the fence or whatever that sentence is that uses all the letters in the English alphabet. And a child, by writing the sentence, will learn all the letters in the Greek alphabet or the English alphabet, as the case may be. The picture here is of an innocent lamb surrendering his life and suffering. And if you learn that picture, you know everything it need to know about being a Christian. It's a picture of innocence. Let's take a look at that picture. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 53, excuse me. There's a saying that sometimes pastors use, the gospel according to, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but Genesis or Lamentations or the Psalms. Here we have the gospel according to Isaiah. This is the New Testament hope of the gospel drawn in Old Testament language in Isaiah 53. And if you're taking notes, you might write in your notes the letter E. There's four strokes in a capital E, three bars on the E and then a back. And there's four lines that the master wants you to trace or exemplify as you learn the gospel from Isaiah 53. The, the backstroke on the E is Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Peter is quoting that in verse 22 of our text. That's the back of the E. And as, you, as you're learning your letters... You're learning there's no violence, no retribution, no lying, no half-truths. He is innocent. The second stroke in our capital E is we're tracing the gospel in Isaiah 53 is verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So not only is, is he innocent, stroke one, but the second stroke of the E is he is quiet. He doesn't brag. Meekness is the chief attribute of the Lord as he suffers. He could change his circumstances. He said to Peter, don't you know that I could call forth you know, 12 legions of angels? and take care of all these guys? You think this is difficult for me? I'm submitting to this. I'm willingly going to my death. I'm not making a case to get out of this. I could, but I'm not. The third stroke, the second bar of the E, is verses 4, 5, 11, and 12. I'll just read them quickly. 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. and He will bear their iniquities. 12. 
He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. This correlates with verse 23, where he has borne our griefs. By his wounds you are healed. He has borne our iniquities and borne the sins of many. To bear means to carry and then to bring. So Jesus, as he's going to his cross, he's bringing our sins with him. Now it's common, as the gospel is explained, to say that that the sins of you and me, the sins of humanity, were placed on Christ on the cross. And there's truth to that. But Paul says in Romans 8, 4, that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. You see, he actually begins to bear our sins in conception when in the incarnation his human nature is taken from Mary and added to the divine person of the Son of God. And in that moment, when he is incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he begins to bear the sins of his people. And there is, in a sense, because he is the eternal Son of God, that he is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He has always borne our sins. So he bears them as he walks in his steps to the cross. He's bearing our sins. And then he bears them on the cross as the wrath of God is poured out. And then he bears them into the tomb where he submits to the power of death. And then when he rises from the dead, he bears them no more. They are paid for. It is finished. And then the last stroke, we see the the back and the two bars of the E. The third bar of the E is in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That evokes verse 25 where Jesus is described as not only the good shepherd who pays for our sins, but the seeking bishop who seeks us and guides us in the wilderness. So this is the example that we are to trace or the blueprint we are to build. That which is an innocent lamb suffering unjustly, quietly, not retributing, but receiving what he doesn't deserve, seeking and saving the lost. Picture of innocence. The path, thirdly, is non-negotiable. Back to our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, we are told... For to this you have been called. This is a calling. And in my experience, no one asks for a calling. You can can think about it, but calling has to happen to you. You're passive in a calling. Hey, Phil, come over here. Okay. This is why I'm saying it's non-negotiable. How is it non-negotiable? Because the call comes from someone else and we often resist the call, particularly when it's the call of God. But while denial is often a reaction, the one who calls says, no, this is your calling. It's non-negotiable. You see, God wins in that arm wrestling contest every time. Scripture tells us that he enters into our resistance. And some of you may feel that resistance right now. You're resisting the call. 
And God enters into that resistance. He's with you in that resistance. He knows your frustration. And He sweetly and graciously, winningly, overcomes your resistance. He subdues you to Himself in the most loving and powerful way. The Holy Spirit of God convinces you of the thing that you refuse to believe. He, he meets your doubts and then sets them aside that you might embrace Him instead of your critique or your concern. Christ here in our passage, by talking about His steps, is like a mountain guide. You have to go the way of the guide. Uh, I, Howard Marshall, puts it this way, there may be many possible ways to the summit of a mountain, But the guide chooses the particular path that he himself takes, and you must follow in that way. Now, some churches are not teaching you this. There's teaching that that is an easier way, a softer way, a smoother path. And these are churches, as Luther described in the Reformation, in Babylonian captivity. These are churches that have become captive to the spirit of the age. And in our case, these are particularly American churches. Prosperity is my right. Every way and every day, things are getting better and better. And we have much to teach you. You have nothing to teach us. So even our concept of missions as a church, and we're, we're working on our missions committee as a church, which sounds very Presbyterian, but we're, we're a team who are strategically thinking and praying about how to advance the kingdom of God through this congregation, and we need you. And it's crucial for mission-minded people to recognize that we're walking in His steps We're giving to others what He has given to us. And He is the chief shepherd and bishop of our souls. And unlike the mountain guide who may be primarily concerned with your health and safety and not to mention a lawsuit, Christ is concerned about your holiness, your salvation, your sanctification. This is what Jesus calls in the Sermon on the Mount, the narrow way. You'll want to leave the path for an easier way, the so-called broad way that leads to destruction. And it's not hard to find it because many are traveling that road. But the narrow way leads to life, and few there be that find it. So it's non-negotiable. It's also non-negotiable because there is no salvation without suffering. You are called to this. Salvation, if I may put it this way, entails suffering. If you unzip salvation, what's inside that is suffering, death, and resurrection. It's a three-part deal. It's baked into the recipe. It's not an optional feature on the automobile. It's in the base package. Martyrology, the study of witnessing including witnessing to the death, 
is what it means to walk in his steps. When you become a Christian, you become a witness, a follower of Christ, following in his steps in his suffering. The cost is high. The picture is innocence. The path is non-negotiable. My final point is the power to walk in his steps is special. That's because Jesus himself is special. He's unique. He's one of a kind. I'm getting ready for the spring, and that means yard work, and so I'm taking out my tools, and some of them take straight gas. Others take a 40-to-1 mix, two-cycle engine. Don't mess that up. There's a special fuel required for certain engines. Ask my son-in-law about the fuel that a NASCAR automobile takes. It's not the stuff I put in my car, I guarantee you that. Neither would you put jet fuel into a car engine. Likewise, the power you need to walk in the steps isn't just reading the Gospels and doing what Jesus did. The pictures you see of Good Friday celebrations where men are carrying huge crosses is the opposite point. You can't do what he did. No sooner does Peter tell you to walk in his steps than he shows you that the steps are impossible to take because he's unique. No one can walk in his steps like he He's the eternal son of God. What makes Jesus profoundly special is that he is the sinless one who bears sin. That applies to none of us. On the cross, he would bear the wrath of God for his own sins if he were a sinner, but he's not. The text says that he hung on a tree. What this means, the Old Testament curse, which is cursed as anyone who hangs on a tree, he became a curse that you and I might receive a blessing. It's one of my favorite passages, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. So I'm following in his steps because he walked that way before me. He, by his steps, have enabled me to imitate his steps. I don't become Christ. I imitate Christ. I follow Christ. He's special because he heals by his own suffering and death. You know, some charismatic churches teach that there is healing in the atonement. Is this true? Sometimes. But when the promise is turned into some sort of an absolute guarantee or a rabbit's foot, of course it depends on you having enough faith, it's a terrible religious lie, even a blasphemy. No, healing that Peter speaks of in our passage is not by Jesus' hands, but by his wounds. Paul says the wages of sin is death. So Jesus was wounded so that you don't have to keep working for master death. You're healed of that affliction of living your life for death. You can now, as God's free people, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, you're now free to live for righteousness. That's what our passage says. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness, walking in his steps. The healing that takes place, interestingly, is by turning. 
We're healed by returning to him, by, by turning, actually, by him turning us. We are healed because we are turned. It's as if we're running in one direction as a little child and the Lord puts his hand on our head, picks us up and turns us around and now we start running in the other direction. We are healed from going the wrong way. What's killing us is where we're going. We're going in the wrong direction, fast. And so he's unique because he heals us from where we're headed. The Spirit of Christ turns us from our wayward ways to heaven in the new birth. And he's unique not only because he's sinless and he heals us, but he is our shepherd. Now, there are many great examples of great men and women seeking and saving lost sheep. Last week, I mentioned Frederick Douglass. He was an escaped slave in the 19th century who, through his wife's help, who was a freeborn black, found his freedom. She was like a shepherd of lost sheep, and she saved Frederick Douglass. Using parts of the so-called Underground Railroad, Douglass benefited from many shepherds of lost sheep. And in church, when someone doubts or struggles with faith, when that person's helped to see and embrace the truth, we become shepherds rescuing lost sheep. When an adolescent is going through a life crisis, as most teenagers do, if we're there for them, if we bend down and relate to them and get off our adult high horses and listen, listen, actually listen, take time, stop our busy, important adult work and come alongside the teens and the students, the college students, the grad students. And you remember that person in your life that made time for you? We become like a spiritual underground railroad. Stops along the way where these sheep are hiding from the wolves and they find refuge in our homes and in our hearts. But this shepherd does something special. He is a shepherd of your soul. Body and soul, he lays his life down and sheds his blood to purchase heaven for you. Well, that's walking in his steps, in Jesus' steps. But it isn't Jesus' steps alone that people like to retrace. While I haven't been to the Holy Land, I have followed in the steps of the Apostle Paul. Greece, Rome, Paul's second missionary journey back in 2014. I went on a trip with my mom's church in Arizona to retrace Paul's journeys through Greece and the city of Rome. It was amazing. So I got to walk in Paul's steps. Is that good enough? I actually think it is. Walking in Paul's steps is enough. And here's why. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You became imitators of us, Paul writes, and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul follows in Jesus' steps. The Thessalonians follow in Paul's steps. And the Macedonians follow in the Thessalonian steps, and Mercy Hill follows all of them. It is enough. This is the first application. 
We don't just follow in Jesus' steps, you see. We follow in Paul's and Peter's and James and John's steps. And it isn't just the people in the Bible. We follow our parents and grandparents, our fathers in the faith, our spiritual guides and mentors. We follow the steps of the young people in our church who set an example, as young Timothy did, in faith and love. That's why we're part of a church, is that we want to be part of a body of Christ where there are examples that we can follow, people we can point our children to and say, you, you do what he does. I, I'm not great at that kind of following, but that brother, that sister is. I've watched the way that they're living their faith, and I want you to imitate him or her. Another application this morning is How do you define following Jesus? I've pointed this out in my message. Have you fallen for a different guide? Are you off the path and on your own? Peter's readers lived in an environment that was not conducive to Christian godliness. One pastor says they faced struggles like uncertainty about their faith, social pressure to conform, timidity as Christ's witnesses. I think about us as American Christians Our suffering so often feels like the loss of assumed rights and privileges. Assumed rights and privileges. I'm a big fan of democracy, but these are assumed rights and privileges that characterize the land of our pilgrimage. And they all too easily get incorporated in our minds as inherently ours by virtue of the fact that we are Christians. And this is not true. We need to think more critically, especially these days, about what it means to be on mission as a church. What does it mean to follow Jesus? This is an important distinction, I think. Mission, Christ's mission to go to the cross. And then missions with an S is our enacting of Christ's mission in our day-to-day lives. Mission is what God has done for you and me in the gospel. He has acted decisively by sending his son to die for our sins. Missions is our response, not replicating his unique sacrifice, but advancing it, advancing Christ's cause through our work and play and plans. In missions, we spread his heavenly shalom as we walk in his steps in every country, culture, tribe, and tongue around the world. And this is a resurrection message that's good not just for Easter Sunday, but for every Sunday until he returns. Anathema, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we are a people who have been redeemed by you, called to walk in your steps. This morning in the preaching of the word, we've been encouraged and challenged to Search our hearts and our souls and reevaluate how our walking, how our steps, and what they look like. I pray, Lord, that you would continue through the power of the risen Christ to enable us to follow carefully our mountain guide on the narrow path, to examine critically the way in which we have appropriated myths of our society instead of the true story of God and the redemption that's at work in the world. And some of us, Lord, have even gone astray. Some aren't even here this morning 
because they are straying like lost sheep. Be the bishop and shepherd of those souls, and may we follow you as under-shepherds, men and women who are seeking the strays. May we keep ourselves from straying. May we set an example in this assembly for others to follow. And may your grace be upon us until you return. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.